So I officially met Jess, our speaker, uh, last summer, this past summer, awkwardly, as I was at Brayside Camp. For those of you who might be from Ontario, I, I saw her as she was, you know, like hanging out with her kids. And I was like, hi, um, I'm Kim Quigley. And I was, you know, probably very awkward. But um, I had been looking forward to meeting Jess and uh, asking her to come here. And so awkwardly, I met Jess on, on our behalf um, because I had been able to sit under her ministry for the two summers prior to as she spoke at camp. Um, and that's what I did for vacation. I go and I camp. Yeah, yeah. And we we, came, we vacation at Brayside Camp and have my heart like and my soul fed. Um, and so I have really appreciated what uh, what Jess says or her ministry. And she's has an incredible, uh, relatable ministry, very funny. Um, and uh, and so I've really appreciated her. Something too about Jess is so she pastors at Journey Church in Calgary, and um, and it's minus forty right now. Gross. Um, but not only does Jess uh, pastor, but created a not for profit um, with her dad. Safe. What is it? Safe work. Work. My safe work. My Safe Work, I did a little bit of research. So it's a not-for-profit organization that's committed to um, the protection of workers, both physically and her, for, through harassment as well. And so um, for you not-for-profit people, um, it's, she's an incredible resource to even learn from and glean from because she's been able to do ministry uh, both in the church and in the marketplace. And, uh, and so actually, um, as I was reading up... Uh, so Jess has the uh, has a, a pretty incredible award. She has the Governor General's Award, which is the highest honor a Canadian citizen can receive through her work of um, I Safe Work. Yeah. So I say that because um, her ministry has depth and breadth, and we have great things to learn from her. And uh, we're grateful that your family uh, has sort of allowed you to come here uh, in our cold, which I think it's freezing, but um, it's better than what you... Yeah. So anyways, uh, we're grateful. It's going to be a really great week, and we're, um, we're very grateful to have you here. So would you help me welcome Jess? Uh, well, I am really glad to be here. It's the worst when someone publicly says you're funny, because that means like you really got to like work up the jokes. So I, I don't really have any jokes for you. My kids say that I'm not funny. I'm embarrassing. So I'm embarrassing for a living. That's what I do. Um, I, I will tell you a terrible story. I... Um, like, I'm basically a shy person, okay? So, like, don't let this microphone fool you. I'm a shy person. I will not even call Domino's Pizza. I have to have someone do it for me. If you are out there, I see that hand. You understand my pain. You call them, and what are they going to... I don't know if they're going to have a conversation with me. They're going to want to ask me deep theological questions. Anyways, I... But I am basically a shy person. And, you know, like, if you're kind of shy and you talk for a living, these two things feel like a Venn diagram that never was meant to go together. By the way, also, just for a side fact, I was a math teacher, so every single message I try to bring math into it. I know you, probably all of you hate math. You might hate me in a few minutes. Okay, Venn diagrams. Anyways, they don't normally go together. People who are nervous, also people who talk into microphones. So one day I was, about this about 20 years ago, I had to get up and um, give a talk in front of 2,000 high school students, and high school still is a terrible and terrifying place. And um, 
It was Russell Peters' old high school that I went to. So like everybody is a burgeoning comedian there. Like everybody thinks they're just about to get their own HBO special or Netflix special now. That made me old. Anyways, um, <laughs> so I get up and it's like eight o'clock. It's very early in the morning. Someone has decided that on a Monday morning, what would be best is to have a, a health and safety uh, assembly for high school students at eight o'clock in the morning. Said nobody ever. So we get into the high school and um, the, the principal is like trying to like really pump this up. Like this is, this is going to be amazing. You're going to be really excited. And there's a girl sitting in the second row. Okay. So 1500 students, Russell Peters high school. I get up with the mic and this girl. Okay. So now I've been doing this for a number of years. So like I'm getting ready for people to like politely clap. Well, this girl puts her hands like this, like and I am from the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s. And she starts doing this. Okay, so I thought Arsenio Hall. I have made it to the big time now. Like somebody's going to find me. I don't going to. Anyways, and this is what she went. Boring. <laughs> anyways, I'm grateful to be here because nobody today cupped their hands together and went boring. You can imagine how that talk went for that rest of that 25 minutes. Anyways, um, so I am glad to be here. I do have four kids. I do not have the obligatory picture of them. They are almost 16, 13, eight-ish, and six-ish. I have a decade of children. It's hard to know. I have children in every single stage. And it's great because, um, it's great because listen to me, when my six year old, when I'm 65 and my six year old's still living at home, she won't still be six, but I'm still going to be cool. That's, that's how I console myself with this. Cause she's going to look at my outfit and go, no mom, no, I did consider bringing my 11th grader with me, but you know, then the mornings are very stressful because everything I put on, she's like, no, you cannot, no, you can never wear that again. She does love me. I love her. Um, like Kim said, I, I, my husband and I pastor Journey Church together. Um, and it used to be, it used to be called Church in the Hills. Let me just, I, I won't talk the song every time, but I got to give a little bit of background. So uh, Pastor Doug was the pastor of our church. And then we came and wrecked the church. He, he, uh, <laughs> Uh, Doug Frederick was the amazing pastor of Church in the Hills, and we had a great opportunity. Listen to me, those of you that are going to ministry, can I just say this to you candidly? Um, it's really important who you follow. Just, it, it sets, like, like, sometimes we get this idea that we are like messiahs, and like, oh, if it's a train wreck, I can go in there, I am God's chosen one. No, you can't. No, you can't. If it was a train wreck before you got, now listen, if God calls you to it, you'll fix it. It's fine. But if God hasn't called you to fix a train wreck, do not go where there's been a train wreck. Go where there's been somebody awesome. And so Pastor Doug was the pastor of Church in the Hills for lots of years, and um, we were the blessed recipients of his ministry. So thank you, Doug. I know that you're shaking your head going, why are you saying this right now? But I have the mic. <laughs> uh, but we, we really are blessed. And so Church in the Hills merged with another church. And that's a whole other story that I might tell you at sometime this week. Uh, but I, I want to talk with you a little bit this morning about the curse of scarcity. All week long, I want to talk about the Holy Spirit. I, I, I'm really praying. And what I've been praying this uh, entire lead up to this week is that you would get an imagination for what the Holy Spirit could do in your life and through your life. And I think it's really important that we talk about this idea of scarcity at the beginning of this. 
Um, I, I really want to answer, I want us to all ask this question, not rhetorically, but seriously to ourselves. Is God enough? Is God enough for me? Is who he says he is enough? And I think that before we go anywhere, before God takes you anywhere, before you go and change the world, because you're going to, you got to square with this question and, and answer it. Um, I, I married Dave, and Dave, my last name now is like long and sound, kind of like exotic sounding, which is awesome because I did not have an exotic name before. I married an Italian. And um, so my mother-in-law describes me to all of her Italian friends as the daughter-in-law who loves to eat. And this is true. That's how she, she doesn't say I'm lovely or, or funny or I'm the daughter-in-law who loves to eat. But this has been a learned experience for me. So um, when I first um, started dating Dave, uh, and like his parents are like real Italians. They have a kitchen in the basement. They are from Italy. They make their own pasta, okay? Nothing comes from the grocery store. They didn't even know that you could get like, well, I'm sure they did know, but they've never had that prego sauce, never. It's against the law. And, um, okay, so the first time I went over to his house, we'd been dating for some time, and I was going to go over for an Italian feast. And um, after church on Sunday, I don't know if any of you have this problem, but I am starving. Like, I, it doesn't matter if I did anything or if I just sat there like a bump on the log. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I had a prophetic word for 10 people or I sang a song in the key of Z. Um, it does, I'm starving. So I get to Dave's mom's house on a Sunday afternoon, and she... Um, has made homemade pasta. Now, the problem is um, when you're from an Italian house, is that, are any of you Italian here? Yes, I see those hands. I see you. Yeah. If they are single ladies, I'm, I'm just giving you a shout out for your food. Okay, so I get over to Dave's house. I'm starving. And his mom, you, 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 eat like, you eat like family style. So she brings out one big bowl of pasta. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the truth. I get nervous because I'm so hungry, and, I, and, and Dave's parents are there, and his brother and sister are there, and, like, the whole family's there, and nieces and nephews. But, like, what I thought was, like, the bowl was coming to me, but I was so hungry that I thought, I can't. Like, I'm so worried that everybody else is going to eat the food. It's going to come to me, and then there's, like, going to be just a little bit left. And I kind of lost my mind for a few minutes, so I put all this pasta on my plate, and then I ate it, and then everybody else took theirs. I know it's rude. You can judge me uh, in your head. And um, so I, I, I'm eating the pasta, and I'm eating it. And, um, and then I can see that there's a little bit left over. Well, I still have a little bit on my plate, but I thought, no, no. I'm going to get that now because if somebody else gets it, I'm going to be mad. So I got it, and I ate more. And I could see that, like, nobody was really eating all that. And I'm thinking, I thought these people were eaters. Clearly, they've never had pasta like this before. So I, I, I'm like, I think I had three servings, three and a half, four probably. And uh, I could see Dave's brothers and sisters kind of like snickering at me. And I'm thinking, are, are you mad because I can eat like this? Is that what you're mad about? And I was started getting a little bit testy, right? I didn't say it out loud because that would be impolite. It's just in my head as a prayer request to God. Um, so then, uh, so, so I can see them kind of laughing at me. And then Dave's mom comes and takes the pasta dish off the plate. And I'm like, what? You're taking it away? And then she brings out another course. Well, I didn't know there was another course. I'd had four courses of pasta already. 
I was not wearing stretchy pants. I did not know about that yet. So then she brings out this other course of veal cutlets. Well, I'm still starving, so that seems fine. So I have quite a few veal cutlets. If you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry. And um, I, so I had these veal cutlets, and then, and then I could still see them laughing at me. Five courses later, basically, they had to roll me out of the table. Like, I, I had eaten so much that I felt, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you go to a buffet or something, you feel cross-eyed. It feels like your eyes don't focus anymore. And I learned for the first time that I did not know how to eat Italian. Now I know. Now I know. I know that you got to pace yourself. you got to wear stretchy pants. It's like a whole event going to my mother-in-law's house. And um, you see, here's the point. I thought that what was on the table currently was all there was ever going to be on the table. I thought that what was currently right in front of me was all that there was ever going to be currently in front of me. And so it caused me to eat like a crazy person, first of all. Secondly, it caused me to disregard everybody else at the table. Because I just thought that was was in front of me was all there was ever going to be. I want to suggest this morning that some of us are living our lives that way. That we're living like what's in front of us currently right now is all there's ever going to be. And so it causes us to like posture ourselves and position ourselves and and the things that we're asking God for are small because we think that what's in front of us is all there's ever going to be. You see, the abundance mindset flows out of a deep inner sense of both personal worth and security. It's a paradigm that's grounded in the belief that there's more than enough for everyone. Alternatively, a scarcity mindset is the belief that there will never be enough, resulting in feelings of fear, stress, and anxiety. Okay, so no matter what you feel like the Lord is asking you to go into in your life, whether it's ministry or not-for-profit leadership or you're going to be a counselor, this is something we all have to wrestle to the ground. Is there more than enough for me? Is God enough for me? Is he going to be enough for me today? Is he going to be enough for me tomorrow? And in every part of our life, we're going to need to decide whether we're going to live with an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset. The, th- the thing is, what we have to understand is that scarcity is our default. It is our default. Every two-year-old, and I know this because I've done this four times now, all of my two-year-olds, the first, word they were, the first word they learned was mines. Always with a, it's always mines. I don't really know why it's English problems. Uh, but, but it is. You don't have to teach a two-year-old that, Every toy in the nursery is theirs. You don't have to teach. I don't have to teach my eight-year-old son that his hamster is his and nobody else's. We're happy about that. Uh, Scarcity is how we sort of are defaulted to. And so if we don't get very intentional about asking ourselves these questions, then we will live with scarcity. And scarcity, listen, the scarcity mindset is always tested in the real world. So this can't be relegated to just like a spiritual discipline that you work on at 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. on a Monday morning. Scarcity mindset uh, happens and is tested every day and in every kind of situation. The third thing I would say is this is scarcity always guises itself as fairness or justice. (laughs) Which is kind of interesting because right now I think we have a great push particularly in the evangelical world towards justice. And I, I am so happy about that. But I think if we're not careful, uh, we can start to say, well, 
I don't, I don't really know if that's fair if you would do that. It's not really nice. It's, and we stop asking God for big things. Stop asking God for big things because we're trying to fairize everything out, trying to justicize everything out. And so we have, to be, we have to be careful that we haven't limited God in any area of our life. I want to look at a passage from Genesis chapter 13 that I think is going to give us a good uh, example of this. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him. In Genesis chapter 12, you'll remember that this story comes right on the heels of Abram um, being in Egypt. And Abram says to Sarai, hey, you're really beautiful. Just pretend you're my sister, not my wife. Okay? So then we get to, then Abram realizes, oh, I did the wrong thing. Pharaoh finds out that he lied, and in Genesis chapter 13, we find he's coming out of Egypt. Abram was very wealthy in livestock and silver and in gold. He continued on his journey from the Negev and came to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he first made an altar. Then Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land was not able to support them both dwelling there because their possessions were so great. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelled in the land at the time. So Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife, I ask you, between me and you and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you go to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and looked at, at all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. I want, you to, I want you to underline that, that, that Abram's, that Lot's thoughts, when he looked at the whole valley, he looked at the valley and it was awesome. Okay, so historians tell us that basically he looked at the best plot of land. And what did he compare it to? That it was well watered like the garden of the Lord. This is a very interesting insight in Hebrew here. We're, we're going to look at it in a minute. Um, Okay, so he said it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Lot chose for himself the entire valley of the Jordan and journeyed east, and the two of them separated from each other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the valley and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. After Lot had departed from him, the Lord said to Abram, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise and walk through the land across its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar to the Lord here. Okay, so this is an interesting story because um, it really talks about uh, it really shows you the difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. Um, so Lot is, is Abram's nephew. And we know from scriptures onward that Abram in the end basically is Lot's caretaker. When Lot gets in trouble, Uncle Abraham comes and helps him out. Lot is a little bit um, of a brat, though, if we're going to just call it like, hey, he's a bit of a brat. Abram says, listen, we're too big. You're too big, I'm too big, we can't be together. I want you, wherever you go, I won't go. So Lot, what does he do? He looks for the best plot of land. Now, 
in Hebrew culture, this was not really right. He should have said, no, uncle, you are my elder. I, I, you, you pick where you want to go. No, no, not a lot. What he does is he gets a little bit worried. Really? We can read this into the text. Oh, I better, I better get the best. I better get the best part for myself. And you notice how he describes it. Why? Look at this place. It looks like the most godly, like the garden of the Lord. Looks like the garden of the Lord. What was he in the garden of Eden? How does he know? what, What he was basically saying there is like, this looks like the best place. I'm taking it. And as a kid, I would read this story and I would think, now if I was Abram, oh, now I'll tell you, the Lord is working on my heart still, but like, as a child, even, I read this and was like, oh, no, that would never be happening with me. I would, like, wrestle mania lot to the ground and say, no, you aren't taking the best part. Because, you know, do you remember when you were a kid and you used to, like, cut the cake in half? And you'd say to your friend, you have whatever piece you want. Have whatever piece you want. I'll take the other piece. But what you really meant is take the small piece, sucker. I am taking the big piece, right? This is what we do. Now, none of us admit that we do this. None of us say, yes, I am selfish. I always want the best for myself. None of us, like, I don't see any hand. I don't see that hand. <laughs> Somebody admitting that that's how, but, but as humans, this is how we are. We get, now, now, Do I think that God can do work on us? Yes, how I know that is this scripture tells us this. Because in Genesis chapter 12, Abram doesn't really believe that the Lord is enough for him. And how we know that is because he says, I don't know. He he has this internal dialogue. I don't really think God can take care of us. Sarah, lie and say that you're my sister. He doesn't actually believe God is enough. He doesn't actually believe that it's God who will promote him. It's God who will bring the promises to pass. It's God who will do all these things. But yet in Genesis chapter 13, here we have him. And he's saying, Lot, wherever you want to go, you go. And he blesses him to go there. This is how we know we can have growth. That while we naturally as humans are people who hoard and posture and put ourselves into the... We get worried that like maybe it will... We won't be in the right position. We know that we can grow. The thing is, we find uh, that a lot of things happen when we live with scarcity. We can see it in Lot, and we see it in Genesis chapter 14, then when he ends up in, when he ends up in trouble. But, but here's what happens, I think, when we live with a scarcity mentality, when we're not, when we really haven't squared with the fact that God is enough. I, I think a lot of us live with polite underestimation, and as Canadians, I, I want to just push on this a little bit. I, I think uh, we politely don't really believe that God could do the impossible. So instead, what we do is we try to help God out a little bit. I think this really, um, we, we read the scripture and we think, well, that was for back then. And I can't really pray big prayers like that because, like, what happens if it doesn't happen? So we have this polite underestimation of what God can do in us and what God can do through us. Some of you have already set a ceiling on what God will do through you and in you. Some of you have already decided where the no-go zones are for God what he can do, what he won't do, because you're just not that kind of person and you don't have those kinds of skills. So we politely underestimate what God can do. And what, what the pointer towards this is our prayer life. 
So when was the last time you prayed something that really almost frightened you? Like you thought, God, I'm going to pray this, and I, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm going to pray it anyways. I think a lot of us, our prayer life reveals the fact that we're living with this scarcity mentality, like that it, we've got to have all the things lined up. And if we get all the things lined up, well, then God can move through that. And, and then I think it leads to boredom. I think when we live uh, with a scarcity mentality, we, like if you're the only one that's got to figure it out, I mean, you guys are all awesome and you don't live in minus 40 weather like I do, which is, by the way, like fire in your lungs. Hell is a cold place. We can have a theological discussion about that later. But uh, I, 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 th- I think we got a lot of bored Christians. And if I look at the stats that tell me where, where, where young people like yourselves, who come to an institution like this where you are focused on God. If I look at the stats, the stats tell me that most of you will leave here and be bored. Ten years from now, you'll be telling me an entirely different story than you're telling me right now. And I think part of the reason for that is we have not addressed the scarcity mentality that we choose to live with every day. If we don't address it now, it will address us later. If we don't address it now, it will come back to haunt us. If if we don't, listen, if we don't say, God, where in my life have I put limitations on what you can do? Where in my life have I put limitations on what you will do? Where in my life am I? It just leads to a path of boredom. Because then the only thing your Christianity is, is sin management. Getting up every morning and going, what can I not do today? You want to set yourself up for a life of boredom? Like try to manage yourself for the rest of your life. Manage all your thoughts and all your tendencies and all your scars and try to cover it all up. That is what you call a life of boredom. But when we begin to take the limits of what God can and will do, it opens us up to live an adventure. Because today I'm praying things that I've never prayed before. Today I'm believing God for things that I can't even say out loud because I think I... So where there's boredom, maybe some of you came on to these spiritual emphasis days hoping that God would breathe on you in some way, some fresh way. And maybe you don't even, maybe nobody even knows how dead and bored you're feeling inside. I think part of that is addressing where you put limitations on what God will do. Uh, Then I think the third thing that happens when we live with scarcity is we have posturing and striving. We start positioning ourselves so we can help God out. Instead of living in the upside-down kingdom that says others first. And this is where we get into all this political stuff. Now, let me say this, because I I work in both the church world and the business world. And sometimes there's like this weird ideology that like the church world is very political and the business world is just tough. No, no, there's politics everywhere you go. It doesn't matter where you go, what you do. This is why people get like messed up in politics, though, because they start positioning themselves, posturing themselves, like trying to, and this is exactly what Lot did in this passage. I'm going to posture, position myself in the Garden of Eden. Made it sound spiritual, but really what he was just doing is I'm going to get the best spot for myself. 
what he was really doing is Abram cut the cake and he said, I'll take the big piece. I'm going to help God out a little bit. And if we're not careful, this is what happens to us. But it's precisely because we don't believe that God will do that for us. We actually don't trust him to do that. Uh, And then finally, and this is something that I think we all need to guard ourselves against. When we get a scarcity mentality, we get a critical spirit. Nothing's good enough. Nobody is good enough. Now, this will be guised as something no one ever says. You know what I'm just really going to go for right now? A critical spirit. (laughs) What I really want to be known as is a critical, critical, cranky person. Nobody says that. Like, nobody's like, here I am. I'm going to sit in the third row of my church home, and I'm going to critique the pastor's sermon every week, and I'm going to be very angry. I'm going to be a very angry church person. I'm going to get on my Facebook and be, like, the angriest person ever. Nobody ever, like, I remember as a little kid thinking, why are all the grown-ups so angry all the time? And then I became a grown-up. <laughs> but if we're not careful, listen, we do start to get this this little bit of nitpickiness. And you can feel it right here. You feel it right, a tightening of your chest. Like, I can't believe that Justin Trudeau is our prime minister again. Like, we're so angry. But that's scarcity mentality. When I see Christians getting all mad about, they took prayer out of the school in 1773. It, was, it wasn't 1773, okay? I know it seems like we're that old, but like in 1983, that's scarcity. You think God can't work because we're not praying the Our Father in church? Come on. Like when we're worried, listen, we're worried about people having agendas. You're worried about some person having an agenda that their agenda might be bigger than God's? Come on. We, we can't afford to be angry Christians. That, that is the definition of scarcity. We have to come to Jesus. We got to come to the Lord with this openness that says, God, you can do anything. And I believe that you actually want the best for your church, that, that, you're, that, that, that the kingdom of heaven is going forward and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Like, I, I, I think we got to challenge ourselves. Do we believe that or don't we? Or we read the book of Acts and think like, you know, I, I get into discussions with people about this. The church looks nothing like it did in the book of Acts. And they're kind of saying it with their teeth. Like, if your teeth go like this, it's usually a sign you're angry. So see your orthodontist. <laughs> Not, like, when you get, you know when you get angry and you kind of, some of you guys have this. And it's apparently, according to my teenage children, it gives you a jawline. You grit your teeth. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, you're all looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but. Anyways, my 16-year-old tells me about this, that it's a, a thing. But I, I've noticed that when I grit my teeth about something, if I really get to the root of it, it's because I think I can control the situation. And I haven't given it to God. So, like, there's nothing. To me, there's nothing, nothing. Christians should absolutely be the most free, joyful, full of faith kind of people. That's not... That's not pixie dust and unicorns. That's, that's us believing that God is actually in control. That, that's not actually believing. That's not just prosperity gospel. That's actually believing that if God says he's for me, who can be against me? I, I don't have to get myself in a knot over anything. There's nothing. And this is why I can ask God for big things. Because he's in charge anyways. 
And I think when it comes to the Holy Spirit, many of us just think of it as an addendum to our lives. Like, so we're going we're gonna to have like some days of prayer and fasting, and that's when the Holy Spirit will come at that point in time. Instead of saying, God, I'm believing that you, you sent us the Holy Spirit so that we could live without limits, so that we could live in the fullness of who you've called us to be, so that I could live in the freedom, so that freedom is not just a song, a series of songs we sing where you think, I don't really know what that means anyways. In the early 2000s, there were all kinds of songs written about freedom, like so many of them. Do you remember them? Like we sang about freedom and in the river and you were free. And I remember thinking I was, I was in school like you guys were and I, I remember sitting at one of our chapels and all of a sudden it dawned on me, I don't think I know what that means. Like is freedom like, it means that I can jump around? Is that, is that really what free, because nobody's getting free from my dancing. I'm gonna tell you that for sure. I had to wrestle that to the ground. What does it really mean to be free? What does it mean that I don't do drugs anymore? Does freedom really mean that like, is freedom really about chastity? Is that what it is? Like I'm free not to have sex anymore. I'm thinking all these things as I'm like clapping and trying to dance. No, I wasn't trying to dance. (laughs) Freedom really is about this ability to believe that God is in control of your life and you don't have to control it anymore. You see, if we're ever going to get a hold of the Holy Spirit, if we're really going to walk with the Holy Spirit in a personal relationship, we got to get free. Because freedom from control is freedom for the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. That's not that we throw off constraint. And listen, we're going to talk about this over the week. I'm not saying that we go wild and light fires and throw things around. It means that we say, Holy Spirit, all of me. To all of you, I'm not going to live with limitations. I'm not going to live with the spirit of scarcity. I'm not going to believe that I am the one who's going to control anything. You are. God somehow does that. So how, how do we get live a life under the generosity of God? How do we live a life under the freedom of the Holy Spirit? I, I think for all of us, and this is a continual thing that we need to do, we need to get a vision of the bigness of God. As long as God is controllable in your mind, you've set up an image of God in your own image. And some of us in, in, in uh, Genesis, God takes Abram on this walk and he says, count the stars. I love that God did this because God could have just come to Abram and said, hey, listen, you Abram. I'm going to tell you, you're going to have a baby. You're going to be the king. You're going to be like the father of many nations. You're going to be very fancy. Everyone will say your name and it's going to be awesome. You're 90. (laughs) Joke's on you. (laughs) Instead, this is a beautiful passage in Genesis. God says, listen, Abram, come on, we're going to take a walk. God says, look up at the stars and count them if you can, which is like a rhetorical question because Abram couldn't count them because he would still be there now if he was counting them, right? Well, he would be dead, but he wouldn't have finished that. But God actually asks him, to stretch his imagination. And I believe for all of us, this is the thing we got to continually ask God to do, to stretch our imaginations to his largeness. Now, I think we take passages like, um, we'll never, we can never know the height and breadth and depth and width. And we go, oh yeah, that's true. So I'm just going to go for this much. 
And I, I think that that scripture actually is a challenge to us that we would begin to say, God, stretch my imagination for how big your love is. Pull me over on the side of the road so that I am reminded of how good you are. And that takes, you, you, listen, you can't imagine without stopping yourself and taking time to imagine. Imagine doesn't, imagination isn't usually uh, fostered while you're watching, binge watching Netflix. Uh, they say that children's imaginations are actually getting less because of all the screen time that they're having. I would say the same thing is true of us. You can't be on your phone seven hours a day and also have your imagination stretched for the things of God. We, we actually have to take moments to say, God, would you let my mind be blown by you? This is really where the idea of meditation comes in in the book of Psalms, right? That we would meditate on how good he is. That's not a Far Eastern, that's not like uh, transcendental meditation. We're not talking about that. Meditating on the things of God. We need to get a vision for how how big God is. God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, 2 Peter tells us. And he's given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. He wants us to walk through the land that he is giving us, possessing it by faith. You can't get away from that in the scripture. The second thing is that I I, I think this, that we need to declare over our lives that God is more than enough. So all throughout scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, you see that God was a God who spoke and things came into existence. You see that the prophets would speak the words of the Lord. There's something really important about spoken word. And I think in some ways, our culture, our 21st century culture has gotten us away from that. Because you don't talk, we don't talk anymore, we text. I swore I would never do this. But now, when I meet my daughter, whose room is like, I text her. It's terrible. I'm embarrassed to admit it. I wish my eight-year-old also had a device. He doesn't, so you don't have to send me mean letters. But um, I wish I could sometimes text him too, because, you know, we don't, we don't speak a lot. You could go, you know, they say that people can now go days without talking to anybody. Because you can go to a grocery store, and now we don't even have to talk to the cashier. You just tap your money. You can go through drive-ins and tap your money. You can go days without talking to anybody. And in some ways, I think we've lost the ability to speak. And this has made our relationship with God somewhat dysfunctional. I think uh, how we stretch our imagination is by speaking the things of God over our lives. I know that this is different because when I was growing up and the worship leader would say, hey, now we're going to speak over ourselves. We're going to speak out to God. People like all over the place would just, and now what happens is it doesn't matter what church I go to, what place I go to. When the the worship leader who is brave and says that or leaves like a moment, this is what it's like. Exactly. Like awkward, like, come on now, let's let this minute be done now. I I think it's because we've lost that ability to speak. But I think if we're not going to live with scarcity, we actually have to remind ourselves who God is. We actually have to speak it out of our mouths, not just somebody else's mouth, but our own mouth, declaring the praises of God, declaring that God is good, declaring that he is faithful, that he will be faithful to the end, that like he saved me, he will continue to save me, that we are saved, we're being saved, we're going to be saved. This whole idea, we need to speak over ourselves. Uh, Isaiah 40 through 21 says, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. That word declare is all throughout the, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, that we would actually speak out his words. 
And then finally, um, I, I think that we got to do a little bit of inventory on our own lives. We have to identify our own tendencies to hoard and posture. So where are we hoarding and posturing? Where are we trying to like, knock down doors for ourselves? Where are we trying to position ourselves? You know, I just found, I, so I've been pastoring now for over 20 years. And I, I, I mean, this is just incidental knowledge. But every time I try to like position myself, it never works out. It's always like a big, colossal fail. And maybe you can learn from someone that's walked a few steps further than you. Maybe all throughout scripture we see that people who just say, God, here I am, all of me to all of you. It allows God to open up. And you know, in a lot of ways, this takes the pressure off you. You don't have to be like uber. You don't have to be like somebody like who's got like super skills. You just have to say, God, here I am. Holy Spirit, here I am. And I think before we even go into talking tomorrow, I, I, I really want to talk about, um, I want to talk about loneliness because I, I actually think it's something we have to address in the work of the Holy Spirit as it, as it relates to loneliness. Um, and then t- on Wednesday night, I, I want to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I think before we even talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we actually have to talk about the scarcity. We have to address this in our lives. Where is it that I try to control? And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. The, be- the benefits of not of living with an abundance mindset is that we can rejoice with others. That way, when your friend gets a promotion or gets a job before you do, you can be like, wow, that's awesome, and actually mean it. Have you ever done this? Like, wow, that's awesome. I'm so glad you got a boyfriend. <laughs> you're probably going to break up in three minutes because you're an unstable person. Okay, so listen, when you live with abundance, though, you don't have to live like that. Clearly, that struck a nerve here. Okay. I also do a seminar called Treat It Like a Job. If you're looking to get married, you could talk to me about that. It's my favorite topic to talk. If I could preach on it every week, I would. Treat it like a job. If you're single, you wouldn't stay in your mom's basement and say, I'm waiting for someone to bring me a job. This is a side note. This has nothing to do with... Anyways, okay, I'll talk about that some other night. <laughs> um, okay. But it, but it does mean, listen, when we live with abundance, it means that we can live open-handed. You don't have to be jealous of somebody else and somebody else's gifts and all the things that they've got. And Listen, my sister, my little sister can sing like Celine Dion, which makes, which has aged me as I say Celine Dion. But anyways... When I was a, a teenager, though, I would pray every night in my bed, God, if she's not going to use those gifts for you, like it was, I, was, I was influenced by the Littlest Mermaid, let her voice come into mine. <laughs> Terrible. Scarcity mindset. Now, some of you are not as ungodly as I am. You haven't prayed prayers like that, but you've prayed prayers like, God, would you just make me a different person so that I can be like more effective? And if we guise it like Lot did, like, oh, that looks like the garden of God. It sounds better. If you use words like impact, effective, strategy, sounds more spiritual. It's not. It's scarcity. God has made you exactly the way he needed you to be. We just have to say, God, you're more than enough in my life. You're more than enough in my life. And and I, I believe when we live like that, we can we can really live like the best is yet to come. Like, I had to just, coming into 2020, you know, people were, um, whenever you get to a new decade, people are weird, like it's something different. 
And so everyone was saying, this is going to be your best year yet. I started to go, really? Is it going to be my best year yet? I'm squarely in middle age now. I know what's going to happen. Is it going to be my best year yet? And I I felt the Holy Spirit just tap me on the shoulder a little bit because I was getting a little bit cynical about it. And I wanted to have like kind of like cynical quips back to people. Is it really going to be your best year? And not godly. So um, I felt the Holy Spirit just tap me a little bit and say this. You see, when we live, when we live in the kingdom, when we live for the Lord, it says in the Bible that though our outwardness is going downhill, you don't understand this now, you will in a few years. But yet inwardly, he's renewing us day by day. So yes, yes, you're being renewed day by day. So yes, 2020 is going to be our best year yet because we've walked with God one more year has nothing to do with circumstances, has everything to do with how God's renewing us on the inside. So yes, 2020 is going to be your best year, but guess what? 2021 is going to be even better because we're being renewed. We're becoming more like Jesus. So I had a friend who um, who uh, came to know Jesus a couple years ago. I, I pastored most of my life in the inner city. That's why my jokes were never... A... <laughs> They're inappropriate now. They weren't then. Um, and I was a young pastor, probably not much older than any of you. I was probably still a teenager, 20, maybe 20. And I was um, I was like a junior pastor. They got me to do all the things that nobody else wanted to do, which is where we all have to start. So uh, our pastor thought it would be really awesome in the 90s, the late 90s. It wasn't cool then, and it's still strange now, to have a tent meeting. Have any of you been blessed by a tent meeting before? Yes. Okay, yes. I see your ages. So um, the tent meeting is like when you when you put a big embarrassing tent that looks like a circus tent out on a parking lot of a mall. Usually that was when people went to malls. I know you don't go to malls now, but back then we did for everything. And so my pastor got a permit to have a tent meeting with hay. I was living in Minneapolis. Hey, I don't know why they always put hay in tent meetings. So there's a question I will ask the Lord. But they had hay, and somebody would, like, get up and preach really hard. Like, everybody's going to hell, and you better get your life straight with Jesus. And my, my pastor, who is an awesome woman of God, screeched her lungs out. She never had a voice because she was always yelling about Jesus. And people did come to Jesus. Well, anyways, I got tasked with the idea of, like, I had to give out brochures to random folks to come to our tent meeting. I told you I can't call Domino's, so this is a big stretch for me. So what I did is I'd give, like, 17 to each person. You probably have friends that you could invite to our tent meeting. Okay, so I wasn't a really, I wasn't a star employee. But anyways, I got to one lady, and she had, um, she was jonesing out on drugs. She was a drug addict and twitching, and she had six kids with her. I am coming for you because I can give you so many. I can give you so many of these invitations. Well, my friend who was with me, who has since gone on to plant many churches, he had all kinds of faith in him. He's like, this this woman's going to come. She clearly needs the Lord. She's like a heroin addict or crystal meth. I don't know what kind of an addict she was an addict. So he is there and she is not with us. Like she is like doing this. But he is preaching the gospel to her. He's telling her that God loves her and that he has a plan for her. And God's got something good for you. And this was a divine encounter that we're having. And I am at the side like this, full of faith. Come on, now, Wayne. We got to go. 
it's freezing out here. It's Minneapolis. It's like probably negative 40 there too. So we, we it wasn't negative 40 because it was a summer, but it was cold nonetheless. If any of you were doing the math there, but a tent meeting is negative 40. So anyways, we get to the tent meeting and I am standing kind of at the back, like very, very embarrassed about being at the tent meeting. Some of you, by the way, are worried because you're like not naturally bold enough and you think, oh, God will never use me. Can can I just tell you that I am an example of someone that's not like I'm not naturally very bold. So it's like the quiet time and, you know, in the quiet time of the the service and all I hear is like bags rustling. So everybody, like everybody does, you you pretend you're like this. I turn in my head, what is this lady? Well, then I get full of faith because I invited her. And um, I didn't really. I was nervous and just wanted to give her. But anyway, she comes right down the front. And she and her six kids, she's got like, she's got a son with catatonic epilepsy who just would all of a sudden go like this. They couldn't afford the medication for him. Anyway, she came up that night and she gave her heart to the Lord. And she said to me that night, yo, yo, Jesse, I'm going to be one of those. I'm going to be like that that Pastor Monica, I'm going to be like her, I'm, but I'm going to do it for you. She had no church background, nothing. I said, all right, well, great. Praise the Lord, you've come to Jesus. Years go by, and uh, she doesn't have a GED. She puts her, um, she puts a sign on her apartment that says gangbanger, stay away from here, but it was all spelled wrong. It's so funny. I, if I had had a cell phone, then I would have taken a picture, but I didn't, so you just have to take my word for it. Uh, because gangbangers used to come in for 25 bucks. She would let them shoot out of her window. She got radically transformed by God, and she would say to me every day, "Yo, Jess, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a youth pastor." Because by this time, she's getting the lingo right. I'm gonna be a youth pastor. I said, "All right, let's try to get grade nine done first. So every night, I would go over there and I'd work on my schoolwork, and she'd be working on her schoolwork. And a couple years went by of this, and it was really hard. I mean, you can imagine you've got six children. She had four of her own and two of her sisters, and um, she could never. I was slow going. I had to move away. I had tragedy in my own family and had to move back to Canada. And um, I, I kind of lost contact with Trish. And um, her phone got disconnected. And that's always a bad sign when you're in the inner city. Your phone gets disconnected. It means things, hard things have happened. Well, I connected with one of my friends a couple years later who said, to, I said, she said, have you heard from Trish? I said, no. She said, oh, I have. You know what happened to her? I said, no, I don't want to hear it. Like, I was just... By this time, I was working in the inner city, and I was just hard stories. And she said to me, I, I want you to know you do want to know what happened to her. I said, all right. And she said, I, I want you to know that after you left, she finished her GED. And then she went on, and she finished Bible college, and then she went on, and she planted a youth group in the Robert Taylor Projects. The Robert Taylor Projects in Chicago were the largest projects in America at the time. They've since been blown up. But this time, she, she the, my little friend, who was a drug addict, 90 pounds wet, led one of the largest youth ministries. And uh, she went on to get, now listen, she went on to get her master's. Her All of her children became educated. Her son just graduated. He plays with the Chicago Philharmonic the violin. He's an amazing and accomplished violinist. Now, I tell this story wherever I go, and I told this to Trish. We got back in contact. She, just, she was just finishing her master's in communication from the University of Chicago. I said, I, t- I tell your story wherever I go because I think some of us think that stories like that, they're like uh, tantamount to biblical stories, but I, I want you to, she-, she said this to me, you tell every person that you know that Trish was a living 
breathing person who couldn't even write correctly, gangbanger, stay away from my house. She didn't even have enough skills for that. She's now a person who has lived and walked with God for more than 25 years, seen God do extraordinary miracles. Now, if God can do it in a, in a person like Trisha's life, God can certainly do it in your life. He can certainly do it through your life. You are not some of your experiences. You are who God says you are. And if we will decide that we're not going to live with scarcity, but we're going to live under the abundance of God, we're going to let his abundance live through us and live on us. It changes everything. You might not be going to the Robert Taylor projects, but I'll tell you this. God has a plan for you. He has a vision for you. He has a future for you. And if you'll live in his greatness, not in your own greatness, your own greatness, you ain't going to make it if you're just doing it on yourself. If you're going to learn to just say, God, where, where am I hot? Where am I hoarding? Where am I posturing? I believe that God, the Holy Spirit's going to do something through you so extraordinary. You'll look back at your life and think, how, how is this even me? How did God even do this? We just bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, I thank you that you're here. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here. God, I thank you that you want to replace our scarcity mindsets. You want to replace it with your abundance. And right now, God, I pray that you would give us vision to believe you for greatness, to believe you for great things, to believe that you are who you said you are, that you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end, that, God, you are everything we need. Right just here in this place, would you just take a moment, just listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit now. Just listen for his voice, just whispering to you, maybe areas of your life where you have limited God. Areas of your life where you've tried to posture. are some areas in your life where you have tried to make it happen. God just wants to release you from that right here in this place. God, for my friends that are dealing uh, with rejection here, been rejected at some level. God, I pray that you would release them from that. Would they know, God, that you are a God who accepts them? For my friends today that are um, worried about what will come next, God, may we live under the greatness that you are the one who knows our next steps. God, I pray that you would give us a vision today for how big you are. Give us a vision for how big you are and give us the courage then to declare it over our lives. As the band plays, I I just want to encourage you to respond in any way that you feel the Holy Spirit's asking you to respond. Maybe it's to come to the front. Maybe it's to sit in your seat. Maybe it's to pray with somebody. I, I don't know how the Holy Spirit's directing you to respond, but I do know that we do all need to respond. We need to say, God, no matter what your vision of God is, he's bigger. He's never done working on us us in this place, would you just say, God, would you just give me a vision of your bigness and greatness? And as the band leads us, would you just respond this way?